This is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today, I'm so excited to talk through a topic that comes up quite a bit in my life, and that is the topic of problematic faves. What is a problematic fave, Bridget? Well, I'm glad you asked. A problematic fave, according to Urban Dictionary, um, which is sort of a, I mean, it's like a, how would you describe it? It's like the go-to source for the youngsters. Yeah. And for those like me who want to keep up with the youngsters. <laughs> and I also highly recommend searching your own name in Urban oh, Dictionary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it gets real specific. It'll be like, yeah. a Bridget is a person who never pays you back when she borrows money. <laughs> It'll be like, did you have a bad experience with a Bridget? <laughs> yeah, you can go rant about an Emily. With, but check out the difference between Emily with an I-E and Emily with a Y oh. on Urban Dictionary sometime. I found it pretty fascinating. <laughs> that is fascinating. Anyway, what is it actually about? So a problematic fave, according to Urban Dictionary, is a, per- a favorite person, usually a character, who has problematic views and opinions. And so I got to thinking about this. Um, I'm someone who enjoys a wide spectrum of popular culture, including popular culture made by people who maybe do not share my personal values or political ideologies. Sure. And I got to thinking, what is this concept? Why do we have them? Why do we feel squeamish about them? Who are some common problematic faves? So I put out a call to my networks asking folks for their problematic faves. Um, some of the common ones folks said were Kim Kardashian, or any of the Kardashians, really. Um, Amy Schumer, uh, Lena Dunham. Surprisingly, a lot of people had a anxiety about being huge fans of Lena Dunham's writing and, and her, her work yeah. on girls, but feeling conflicted about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Tina Fey, another big one, Woody Allen, which right. I I totally, totally understand. Yeah. Um, and then some folks had other ones that are sort of more nebulous or, or they're not people. Um, the Democratic Party or Amazon Prime or Uber. Yeah. These things that you use a lot and that are kind of staples in our, in our culture, but maybe aren't always so great. Right. I think it's that contention between I intrinsically like what they're doing or I like the service I'm getting or I like the art that they're producing. But when I learn more about the person behind that art or behind that service or product, or when I learn more about how that company operates, which is something I think we cover a lot here around really values-driven consumerism, uh, I feel conflicted. And the more you learn about a celebrity you admire, and maybe she or he says something a little offhand or off-color or does something terrible in a very public way, there's this new, relatively new, way in which we as consumers, I think, are holding celebrities and companies to a high moral standard, not just based off of their artistic expression or based off of the product or service, but how they do what they do. Well, there's actually data that shows that a lot of this is being driven by younger folks. Millennials are actually much more likely to spend money with brands if those brands are showing signs of being socially invested or, or, or socially conscious. In 2015, Nielsen published its annual Global Corporate Sustainability Report, and it indicated that globally, 66% of consumers are willing to spend more on a product if it comes from a sustainable brand. Millennials were even more likely to spend if these brands were sustainable, with 73% surveyed indicating a similar preference. So basically, younger folks really expect brands that they spend money on, and and I guess, by that logic, celebrities and and media and culture that they consume to have some sort of 
social responsibility or, or social or civic investment. Yeah, which feels to me relatively new, but I guess this is something that's come in and out of vogue over the years, right? We think back in the 80s and 90s, celebrities like Jane Fonda, Paul Newman, they've been walking the walk and getting politically involved or advocating for causes in addition to promoting their products or movies or celebrity. So... I know you have done a lot of speaking, I think, at South by Southwest mm-hmm. about celebrity activist culture. Yeah, well, I my um, my theory is that for celebrities in this day and age, everything is sort of political right now. And for a celebrity to not genuinely engage with politics or activism or social causes or something other than just their own celebrity, right. those are the celebrities that don't really have staying power. And so when you think of people who were really huge that didn't really meaningfully do that, I think of people like Iggy Azalea, those are the people that I see who sort of were big for a while and flamed out because in order to really have a, a lasting presence, you need people need to feel like you're meaningfully invested in the world, not just mm. in your product. That's interesting. That's my theory. I think that's a great theory because it feels authentic to see a fully rounded array of interests from some celebrities, right? Totally. Like you see their full personhood. When I think about when the term problematic fave really got into the cultural zeitgeist, I'm reminded of this Tumblr blog that was really, really, really well known back in the early days of Tumblr called Your Fave is Problematic. And basically this blog was dedicated to highlighting the ways in which people that were kind of catapulted into fave status, people that yeah. people that we all probably know and love, your Amy Schumers of the world, your Tina Fey's of the world, cataloging the things they did that were, quote, problematic. So Justin Bieber's at the top of the yeah. list here. Um, and so they really saw this, whether or not this is true or not, they really presented this as we are just, you know, a historical database of celebrities. You know, we're not saying they're bad people. We're not saying don't like them. We're just giving you the facts. Right. They would always claim, according to the Vice article, that, quote, their site is merely an archive saying, we just document problematic things that celebrities have done. We are record keepers and nothing more. Yet this idea falls flat on its face after just a small peruse of the archive where opinion rules. It's not record keeping to call someone a, quote, piece of something I can't say on the radio or trash. And that the idea of that fairly objective things, like whether it's acceptable for a Bajan woman to wear a kimono can even be subject to, quote, record is tenuous at best. So I just love how this Vice article kind of brings a little bit of that problematic fave methodology to their blog and saying, even though we like this and this sort of call-out, call-in culture around celebrities can be intriguing and interesting and helpful, don't pretend like you're just record keepers because you are certainly not doing fully objective journalism here. Totally. So I kind of like how he highlights the problematic nature of, of your, your famous problematic.tumblr.com. Right. Um, but I think what that article really also nails for me is the way in which these terms that we are, if you're someone who spends a lot of time in progressive or social social justice spaces, that we think of as pretty common, terms like microaggressions or fat shaming or body shaming, these were things that, you know, back in the day, people weren't talking about. And I think he is right that this blog really made them more ma- mainstream. He writes, before I came across this website, the concepts of cultural appropriation, microaggressions, fat shaming as a body politic, and not just an insult 
Trans misogyny, the word cis, and a slew of others were essentially new to me, and I imagine to a lot of people. These terms were presented via the criticism of celebrities, something as something we all consciously or not partake in regularly. Right. And so really taking these terms out of like the gender studies textbook and applying them to, you know, Tina Fey was a kind of new thing. And I don't think people were really doing it in that way um, before a certain time in our in our culture. Yeah, and I think there's a level of discomfort around critiquing something that everybody likes, right? When you are listening to your favorite recording artist and just jamming along to, I don't know, hip-hop lyrics that might be drenched in misogyny, as we've discussed before, and fully enjoying every moment of Lil Wayne blaring into your earbuds, and then you've got a blog like this Tumblr calling out celebrities for their misogyny or for being blind to cis gender privilege, right? There's this defensiveness that I think is inherent to the human experience. You want to cheerlead someone, but you want to also have the space and be able to psychologically hold them accountable and know that it's nuanced. And I think a lot of folks still find it really troubling, even on our podcast, because we do talk about individual women um, whether it's Ivanka Trump and her feminism, or if it's other business owners or celebrity women or women in the labor movement and leaders. And we definitely bring our opinions to the table and talking about what we love about these women and what we find problematic. I think there's this inherent defensiveness that comes up for folks of saying, you can't say anything bad about someone I really admire or someone that I really like. Yeah, and I think... I completely agree, and I've definitely been on the receiving end of how dare you have an opinion about such and such celebrity that I really enjoy, <laughs> right. not saying any names. Um, but I, I get it, I get it, and I, I definitely have felt that as a, as a feminist, as a progressive person, that it can be hard to just enjoy something. That's like one of my favorite um, headlines from The Onion. Woman takes short half-hour break from being a feminist to enjoy TV show. <laughs> 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 and so I get it, I get it. Sometimes yeah. it just feels like, can you just enjoy a song or enjoy a show or enjoy a celebrity or enjoy a media thing right. or a culture thing without having to unpack the ways in which it's problematic right. and Wearing nuanced and feminist and socially sensitive lens that you have on all the time. I often find myself calling things out or just pointing out some problematic things in culture or in whatever it is that we're consuming. And Brad will go, is this a feminist thing? <laughs> And I'm like, yes, dear. Yes, it is. Yeah, here we go again. He's like, aw. I was, <laughs> I was kind of hoping to just enjoy this movie. Just want to watch Game of I Thrones. Like, I just want you to notice who uh, who the protagonists are over and over again and the racial disparity in our TV program. This does not pass the Bechdel yeah. test. No, it doesn't. Exactly. He's like, oh, here we go. He's like, is that a feminist thing? <laughs> I love it. But the most it. satisfying thing, I have then witnessed Brad the Boo say similar things in front of all of his dude friends while they're trying to enjoy something. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just sitting back so proud. Yeah, like feminist call-outs are the gift that keep on giving. It like, is. you give it to Brad, he gives it to his friends. I was like, I've infected you. <laughs> like, you can't take the lens off now either. Congrats. I love it. I mean, I think really what this comes down to is that Really, everybody, we want to live our values, but sometimes it can be hard when we enjoy something that doesn't also reflect those values. And I think it's interesting how you really only see that kind of recently. Over at Vox, Jamie Wyman argues that sometime in the past decade, socially conscious criticism became the norm. And so when you think about shows like How I Met Your Mother, shows like Friends, 
they were often kind of criticized for not being racially diverse or not being inclusive, but the the shows didn't necessarily feel like they needed to respond to that in an oversized way. I yeah, know, and I don't think there was mainstream criticism. No. So I know on Friends they added, I think it was Aisha Tyler, kind of like late, late in the show, right. um, as a response to that. I know on Seinfeld they kind of poke fun at it, but they didn't really have any kind of, it wasn't a mainstream argument, and they right. didn't really feel the need to... Um, you know, diversify their cast, right? Or, in a city like New York, yeah, because you know that's not a diversity. Just a bunch of white people living in a huge apartment in New York, duh. Well, they work at coffee shops. Right. Totally realistic. Yeah, everything else about it was totally true, as true as the diversity on that show. Totally, but they weren't held to that higher standard. Unlike years later. Lena Dunham's Girls. Yeah, so in 2012, um, the controversy around girls and the lack of racial um, racial inclusion on the show, she had to comment on that. She had to add black characters. She had to say, like, oh, this is not a political choice to not add, you know, diverse characters. We want to do that. She was had to, she was made to comment on it quite a bit in a way that other shows, even not even that long ago, shows like How I Met Your Mother um, just were not. Right. And I actually found most of Lena's responses to be quite good, right? Like, I found that she was humble, she was appreciative of the call-in, and she really said, I learned a lot through the process of getting culturally critiqued. And this is a very young woman with a very successful HBO series thrown into the deep end, right? It's like, as a creator, putting your work out there is a vulnerable experience. She got called out, rightfully so, for being whitewashed completely in terms of every main character on that show. But then her response to it, whether, you know, adding in Donald Glover was sufficient or not as a love interest, I don't think is the point here, because I don't think that her adaptations were ever going to be sufficient because the main characters had already been set. But the way that she responded to those critiques, I thought was pretty good. I thought it was effective. Would you say that she's one of your problematic faves? Oh, definitely. <laughs> I was going to say that, that, that was a little like, um, uh, defensive. Not defensive, <laughs> but again, we, yeah. when we like, when we like someone, it is, I'm the same way right. with my problematic faves. Yeah. If Miley Cyrus could have responded half as effectively as Lena Dunham had responded to her critiques, you know, she would be way less problematic. Yeah, I agree. You know what I'm saying? Like, Lena Dunham said, you're right. I need to make adjustments. I totally didn't check my privilege here, but you've helped me acknowledge my blindness to race. And, you know, I'm, she's going to do the best she can to tell her story from her life's experiences, which I have a feeling are pretty white uh, and pretty privileged. And... Yet, she's going to stretch. She's going to make changes. She's going to include folks of color in her operation, not just on the screen, but behind the scenes, too. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, that's why I get it. I mean, it's when you really admire someone, particularly someone who is a creative or, ma- or makes a product that you really appreciate, it can be hard to... I see myself giving my problematic faves the benefit of the doubt time and time and time and time and time <laughs> again. Um, I'm going to reveal who my problematic yeah. fave is after this short break. And we're back. And I was just about to reveal my number one problematic fave. I should say I have a lot of problematic faves. But this <laughs> one is my most F- faviest fave? My faviest fave. Not the most problematic, but my faviest fave. Sure, that's fair. Um, and it is... Drum roll, please. <laughs> that was a drum roll. R.I.P. headphones. I loved it. Uh, Judge Judith Shinelin, a.k.a. Judge Judy. Yes. Y'all, 
I'm obsessed with Judge Judy. I have a framed picture of her in my home. No, you do not. I do. Oh, my God. Um, I've tried to get into the audience of Judge Judy many, many, many times, but you have to be an actual actor uh, to be in the audience. If you, you ever actually me? watch Judge Judy, the people who are watching the show, like watching it <laughs> yeah. during a taping, they have the most expressive faces. They're always making the, the like most intense shock face or gasp face. Oh, and it's because they're all my actors. God. They're like, this is my moment, Mom. Watch me. Yes. Uh, it's 2 p.m. on yes. Thursday. <laughs> Daytime. Um, I watch it. I DVR it. It's the only thing I DVR. It's my okay. favorite thing. So I have to admit, Bridget, I hadn't even thought of Judge Judy for, I don't know, a decade until you admitted this to me the other week when we were talking about this episode. So what is it that you love about Judge Judy? First of all, her show is entertaining as hell. <laughs> go, I'm not kidding. If you have a hard day at work, go watch Judge Judy. It's like the perfect half hour of television. You get four like dramatic, juicy other other people's problems, other people's yeah. stories. You get to like dive in. She basically is the Greek chorus of the, of the show because like what you're thinking, she says, and yeah. you're like, hmm, that's true. Um, she has this amazing relationship with her bailiff bird, where is lots of eye rolls and like shared glances. And I also just love that she. I, I love her story. I love that she got ahead while having this attitude, being no nonsense. You know, I I'm always struck by women who become very famous or very popular or beloved who aren't sweet and demure and right and, and she's done that and that's not easy to do no i mean a c hillary clinton yeah <laughs> right see any other assertive woman uh, in the limelight joy behar um right. so so many i mean when i see a woman who is takes no bs right and is blunt and right. she's beloved i'm 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 all automatically on board yeah i mean people see her as fair and just. So how did she get to this TV fame? Like, how did, how did she get to this level of celebrity? So, fun fact about Judge Judy, she is an actual real judge. Not every judge on TV is a real judge, but she is a real judge. And so, she actually didn't start doing TV until pretty late in life. She got her start in 1982 when she was appointed by Mayor Ed Koch as a criminal court judge. Four years later, she was promoted to supervising judge in the family court's Manhattan division. Here, she earned a reputation as being tough, even though she didn't like thinking of herself as tough. But she was sort of known for her wit, for her bluntness. Yeah. And, I mean, New York in the 80s was not the safest or most, you know, op- it's not what it is now. Well, it was kind of a depressing place. And working in a family, family court, court in, in the no, 80s is not easy. Yeah. I mean, those, and it totally reminds me of the kinds of issues that she deals with. I think it was on Facebook recently that a little clip from her show went viral about a dog custody oh case. my god my favorite also they talk about it on broad city do they There's a broad, about that episode oh that. my god this little dog comes into the courtroom and she says just put the dog down and these two people are arguing over who owns the dog and of course the dog runs up if you haven't seen the episode the dog runs up to this person one of the people i think the plaintiff yeah and jumps all over him, kisses him, and he picks him up. The and guy's like, like, baby boy. Baby. Yeah, and she's like, case closed, hammer, you know. What is that, what is that hammer called? Gavel. Gavel, that's it. Gavel away and case closed. I just, I mean, she is decisive and she's unapologetic. And that definitely was noticed as a young attorney in New York City. That appointment to becoming a judge is pretty incredible. Um, and in 1993, her reputation got the attention of the LA Times, right? Yeah. So in this really great LA Times article, she's sort of framed as being a no-nonsense judge that is taking 
is making sure that our institutions are representing the, quote, common good. And so I loved this idea of her sort of using family court to make sure that these institutions are actually representing people in a way that is fair. Right. um, Which I think is great. It's amazing to see how years of hard work, right, years of hard work in the law end up getting her noticed in the LA Times, which then spins into a piece on 60 Minutes. So that's really her TV debut. And... 60 Minutes, that spot, I'm sure, had something to do with her getting on TV as an, in a next phase of her career. So isn't it insane to think you're going through law school, right? You're busting your butt as a, in a male-dominated field in which you are not always deemed worthy or felt welcome in that environment. You are this acerbic, hard-hitting, takes-no-prisoners kind of judge. You get promoted, you get noticed, you get written about, you get on 60 Minutes, And back in that time in her life, like as a young attorney, she never would have imagined herself being the queen of daytime TV. Right. And being, (laughs) being, being a actual like media mogul just based on her personality, her wit and her hard work. I mean, that's like a fairy tale. Someone sees you doing your job so well and so interestingly and so competently that they, they're like the universe plucks you out of obscurity to be hugely, hugely famous and successful. I love it. How often does that happen? I feel like it, that's right. the beauty of her story. I get oh, it. I love it. I read her book. It's so good. Like, okay, her, her book's title. Please tell us the title. <laughs> Don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. <laughs> what? Another thing I love about her is that her bailiff on the show, Bird, he isn't just an actor. He's an actual bailiff. And he was her bailiff back in the days when she was in family court. Um, and basically, they always had this chemistry with each other. They've always, if you watch the show, they're known for their shared glances. And <laughs> she'll often throw to Bird and he'll be like, oh, I don't even know, Judge. Like, they had this great banter. And I just love, I, I remember reading a story where when she was being picked to go on TV, she called Bird to tell him and Bird was like, well, you know, I still look good in my uniform. And she was like, yeah, you should be my bailiff. And now he's a millionaire. She like made him a millionaire. She made him a millionaire, which I love. That Um, is amazing. And I just love that this chemistry they have has really kind of made her the undisputed champ of syndication on TV. Yeah, I mean, according to Variety's list of highest paid TV stars of 2016, Judge Judy is the highest paid TV star, earning an estimated $47 million a year for her show, which, by the way, is in its 21st season. That is so insane. That number, $47 million, seems completely insane to me until you look at how much money her show brings in. Okay, Variety says that the show brings in between 160 and $170 million a year in revenue, and it's the most watched national program in daytime TV with an average of 10.3 million viewers a week. I, I thought for sure it would have been Ellen, by the way. Oh, no, she's richer than Ellen. That's Isn't that nuts? Like, that's um, oh. that blows my mind. And again, she's like a sleeper yeah. mogul because you don't really hear about her in a, in a business way, the way that you hear about folks like Oprah or right. Ellen or, you know. Yeah, and she's an executive producer of another show. Yeah, so Judge Judy is the number one court daytime court show on TV, and the number two is Hot Bench that she also produces. Right, so she's a straight-up mogul, Ugh. in case y'all didn't know. And as a straight-up mogul, she also negotiates like a boss. So as it happens, when she was negotiating with CBS, she, this is like straight out of mafia playbook, okay, or the gangster playbook, because she would have a regular steakhouse dinner with a network president, 
during which time she would casually hand him an envelope containing the number that will be her new salary. Not would be, will be. will be. (laughs) And it also will list any other demands or requests that she has. Quote, I hand him the envelope and I say, don't read it now. Let's have a nice dinner. (laughs) (laughs) She would then say, call me tomorrow. If you want it, fine. Otherwise, I'll produce it myself. And that is Judge Judy's form of negotiation. <laughs> How can you not love that? I mean, that's something out of my fantasies. And she can she can do it. Like, she's so powerful and so successful and yeah. so good. She's got it and like that. And she's one of a kind. I don't know why we missed that tactic in the negotiation no-no episode. <laughs> just, take your, just take your boss to a steakhouse and slide him an envelope and say, you want it? Yeah. Let me know. Yeah. <laughs> don't open it now. <laughs> Let's enjoy a nice meal first. I think that is, like, the real death knell of that. So she's an, a boss. There's no doubt about it. Judge Judy is getting paid. She's taken no prisoners. She has risen up from relative obscurity to being the highest paid daytime TV mogul and talent. So what's not to love, Bridget? Well, I'll tell you what's not to love after this quick break. And we're back. And I was just talking about my number one fave, Judge Judy. Who's rapidly becoming my number one fave. She's the best. She should be everyone's fave. (laughs) But here's why she's a problematic fave and not just a fave fave. Judge Judy commits my number one feminist sin of, well, maybe not number one, but one of many. (laughs) When you ask someone, are you a feminist? And they waffle. I hate that so much. She didn't even really waffle. She said no. (sighs) She does not embody the term at all. She does not. Did she not get the memo from Adichie in the sample track in the middle of Beyonce's album? Come on. We should all be feminists. Yeah. Um, I think that everybody should be a feminist, but I think especially, I'm particularly bothered when they someone says, I'm not a feminist. I just think that men and women should have the same rights. I just think that men and women should, have, should be paid the same. I just think that men and women right. should be equal in the eyes of society. And I'm saying... That's feminism. Yeah, that's right. like saying... I mean... It frustrates me to no end. Right. Well, it's just a good reminder that people hear the word feminist and still don't immediately think gender equality, which is what feminism is all about. It's not about women above men. It's really about the equal social, political, economic, whatever, justice between women and men. And it's just a bummer that even, you know, as smart and savvy and and witty as this 67-year-old TV judge, who, by the way, is a mother of five and grandmother of 11, is not setting the role model of not only being a mogul, not only being an unapologetically assertive woman, but also saying that makes me a feminist. It's just it's just a bummer. It is a bummer. Um, I'm really taken by this article in Jezbel a few years ago about Judge Judy and her feminism or lack thereof, where she basically kind of denies sexism and doesn't see the sexism inherent in her own come-up story. Mm. She says, I never felt I didn't have an equal opportunity as a woman, despite the fact that she earlier mentioned that she was one of only six women enrolled in her law school, where she also admits the professors didn't have much regard for female students. And she goes on to say... Some of the professors treated you as if you were a skunk at a lawn party and as if you if you were there as a hobby. Sometimes that takes away your spirit and sometimes it makes you tougher. It made me mad and tough. There were a lot of schmucky guys in my class who were all going to be mediocre lawyers at best. And to me, I mean, how can you not read that anecdote yeah. and say, look at that. That is that is 
gender inequality, that is sexism. But she, for some reason, to her, it's like, oh, it made me tough. And that's why I don't need feminists. I'm not a feminist because I saw this as the setback and I, I... isn't this like classic second generation shoulder pad wearing eight, 1980s, there can only be one woman at the top type feminism? Because all I can think of is this is like a feminist version of the Horatio Alger myth, which is classic to the American come up story, which is this idea, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just like I did. Why <sighs> can't you? She killed it. Clearly her career worked out, but that doesn't mean gender discrimination doesn't prevent a hundred million other equally talented Judge Judys out there who aren't given that same shot. So she's saying, yeah, it was tough. Sexism chipped at my ego on occasion and made things a little tougher for me. But I never felt like I didn't have equal opportunity. It's this very libertarian way of saying, I made my own opportunities, so why can't you? And you've always said on this podcast... Feminism is not about one woman's rise, right? Yeah, feminism is not one is not cheering one woman doing awesome, although that's great. Mm-hmm. Feminism is about lifting up others. Feminism is about acknowledging that even if another female identified person has different problems, different struggles, different chains, different oppression, our oppression is linked and I can't get free unless she is also free. Exactly. And I think that's where Judge Judy sees that very differently. She sees the world very differently. I would venture to guess she's a Republican. I mean, she really clearly believes in in individualism, in that pull yourself up by your own bootstraps type mentality. In that same article, she says, quote, I believe in the individual spirit. It was hard for me to put my heart into organizations that were trying to tell me something that I never felt. In that quote, she's referencing feminist uprising organizations. And I understand where she's coming from. She's saying, I never really felt discriminated against. So all that discrimination that you're talking about, other women, I don't know, maybe women across the spectrum of intersectional feminism, maybe women who don't have the same skin tone as I do or don't have the same... Uh, sexual orientation than I do or, or ability that I do, et cetera, et cetera, and onward, that discrimination you're describing, I, I never felt that. So therefore, it's not valid. And there's no need to work against it exactly. in, in any kind of organized way. Um, yeah. I have to stick up for Judge Judy in the typical problematic fave defensiveness. <laughs> yeah. uh, she claims to have voted for Barack Obama. She is pro-choice and pro-gay marriage. She does definitely have some... She's sort of like Angie Harmon. I don't know if you watch Law & Order, but she's... I could talk all day about how much I love Angie Harmon, but is a huge Republican. Um, <laughs> yeah, but who do you think she voted for in 2016, Bridget? Oh, it kills me. If Please, I, sweet Jesus, she cannot. If I find out that Judge Judy voted for Trump... <laughs> My life will be over. Trump alert. We, can, I know we, we couldn't have enough? one podcast without sorry. Trump. <laughs> sorry, ladies and gents. Sorry. That oh my we, gosh. Uh, Judge Judy, if you're listening, please, please get, get in touch with me. We can work it out. Yeah. If you voted for Trump, we can get you out of this. We can save you. <laughs> I don't know. Can, can we, I think we need her to save us at this no, point. Strong woman. I bet she I voted hope Clinton. She loved Clinton. Like, like, I, I hope be- she identified with Clinton. Yeah, strong women. She has to. They're so similar in some ways. Yes. I don't know. It is. It would make her much more problematic, wouldn't it, if she voted for Trump? But here's the thing. I get, I really do have a ton of respect for a lot of Republicans, and I get the free market capitalist approach. I'm a business owner. I, I believe in 
capitalism as a vehicle for positive change too, not just oppression, which we've had some really interesting conversations with our fans on social media about recently. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel a bit differently. I would not yeah. call myself a, a capitalist. No. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but so I sort of see though, I mean, I see, I have respect for what she's accomplished and I understand this blindness to other people's oppression. I just don't think, I think she can do better. I think she's got incredible intellect and wit and empathy clearly is involved in being a good judge. So I'd be surprised for her to not have her awakening, you know, from an intersectional feminist perspective. Maybe that's our, uh, maybe we can have lunch with her. Yeah. Maybe we can, uh, I would die. <laughs> maybe we can send her our intersectional feminism. Uh, if anyone has a connection to Judge Judy, please get in touch with me. I would, I would die of happiness. I'm sure we could all learn from each other at that. Definitely. At that definitely. But I think, you know, when I bring it back to this, this concept of being a problematic fave, I think the Tumblr, um, your fave is problematic. If you go to their frequently asked questions, I think they really kind of capture how I feel. So if you were to write in and say, okay, my fave is problematic. Now what? They write, I'm sorry it upsets you, but it's important to remember that our favorites are human and they will make mistakes and do or say bad things. This does not necessarily mean they are bad people, nor does it mean that you cannot like them. All it means is that you should acknowledge their flaws and that they should be held accountable for them. And I think that is hard, but I think that is so, so right. And so, you know, if you have a problematic fave, whether it's Judge Judy or Kim Kardashian or Justin Bieber or Woody Allen, maybe not him, but... um, (laughs) I mean, his art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I get it. You know, acknowledging it's okay that I still like this person. It's okay that I can't separate... Bill Cosby. (laughs) Oh, that's... (laughs) Is it okay? I have to say... You still love Bill Cosby. I've mentioned on the show how much I love the show A Different World, which he's not in, but Mm. he produced. Mm -hmm. So... I will always like that show, but he's quickly becoming someone to me that, like... If also R. Kelly, yeah. If you still like R. Kelly Chris in 2017, Brown. I'm giving you major side eye. Who's the other rapper that always we always waffle on? It's Drake. Not, it's not Chris Brown. It's Drake. <laughs> Drake's okay. Yeah, he's, I mean comparatively, he's, he's a yeah, fame, to the people like, we just mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. But what you were saying is that it's okay. It's okay, it's and okay. I think what they're saying is, you know, just be honest about it, and it's okay to recognize people's flaws. I also think it's really interesting that one of the questions they have on their FAQs are, okay, well, your your blog is problematic. Are you going to post on that? And they say, we do not think we are exempt from doing problematic things. We, we want to be called out when we do. We do not think this blog is perfect. We have made mistakes in the past. We are not witty or original by sending this sort of message. And I think as, as sort of meta as that is, that's what it all comes down to. Like, totally. our faves are problematic. We are problematic. I am problematic. You are problematic. Everything is problematic. And that's okay. <laughs> We're humans. Right. And that just makes us analytical and interesting and, and open to learning and growth. I really think it's about having a growth mindset on this stuff. And that I think is hopefully we've made it clear that we're really walking the walk on this because this podcast is an exercise in Hopefully we're somebody's faves. You know what I mean? Oh, if, I, if I'm your fave, I'm hella problematic. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we're all imperfect and we've been very transparent about that. And I think we learn as much as uh I hope you listeners learn from us. So I think the exchange of ideas is what this is really all about and that we welcome your call-ins and call-outs uh, as as a part of that, of that path for growth. I really also... 
thoroughly enjoy how the authors of that Jezebel piece kind of reconcile their feelings about Judge Judy. Oh, I, I, they're doing exactly what I do. So they write... So, like Mormon people who baptize the dead, I will anoint Judge Judy as a feminist and get on with my life. That's basically what I've done. In my mind, she's a feminist. She doesn't have to say it. I see it. Yeah. Good enough for me. I love it. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to psychologically compartmentalize your sort of fave status for someone like Judge Judy. And... Listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation because there's a lot of problematic faves that we would like to break down and discuss. In fact, somebody that has been on the headlines a lot lately, and you have already been writing into our inbox often about, who is probably, this is what I posted on your social media page on Facebook when you asked about this, is my number one problematic fave. And that's who we're going to discuss on our next Problematic Fave episode. And that is the one and only Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. We, I have a lot of opinions about Taylor Swift. I know she's your fave. I know she's probably the fave of of lots of people. And she's great in a lot of ways. Don't tell me how problematic she is yet. Okay. Save her for the podcast. (laughs) When you're ready. When you're ready. We're here. You're here to help me. I'm anytime. Help me parse through. Okay, good. Anything else before we sign off. That's it. I loved re-falling in love with Judge Judy. Yes. So thank you. Oh, uh, one last thing. Google Judge Judy vacation photo. There's an amazing photo of her on vacation on a yacht wearing a kimono and a bikini. <laughs> you got to see this picture. It's emblematic of everything that is amazing about Judge Judy. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to join us today. I can't wait to hear more from you. Listeners and Bridget and I are dying to know what your number one problematic faves are. Send us a tweet at Mom Stuff Podcast. Tag us on Insta at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And as always, we love getting your emails. Tell us all about your problematic faves and tell us who you think we should break down next in an episode just like this one by emailing us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. 